Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Let's look at God's word where we see his faithfulness. And would you guys pray with me once more? Lord Jesus, we are always a people in need. Always, 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 always. Until we get into a new heavens and a new earth, we have needs abounding. And even when we get there, we have a great need that is met finally and fully by you. And so Lord, as we come to your word, we come as a people um, who humbly rely on what only you can offer. We pray as we look at the book of Proverbs that you um, come into our heart, that your knowledge becomes pleasant to us in such a way where this text is applied clearly by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, uh, hopefully you're already opened up there to Proverbs 2. We're working through the book of Proverbs. We're in the first nine chapters right now, which is kind of one uh, cohesive prologue to the rest of the book, the 31-chapter book of Proverbs, and we're talking about wisdom, and not just wisdom, but God's wisdom. And I'm assuming that each of you desires to be wise for any various reasons. And perhaps, primarily, wisdom implies you have the ability to choose what is good and avoid what is bad or dangerous. But have you ever been in a situation where you know what not to do, you know which choices are bad, but you don't know which choices are good? You don't know what it looks like to act in the positive. Being a kid who was raised in youth group, there's one movie you know better than all the other movies, and it's The Princess Bride. It reminds me of this scene where the two individuals are presented with two cups of wine, and one is said to be poisoned. And the movie picks up with this dialogue, and the character, Vizzini, surveys the cups, and he says to the man in black, to the hero, he said, now a clever man would put poison into his own goblet, because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he's given. I am not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known that I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so clearly I cannot choose the wine in front of me. And so far in the book of Proverbs, what we've read is all the cups are poisoned. In chapter 1, he shows us uh, Solomon and the father who's kind of lecturing shows us that all these paths are bad paths. They lead to bad places, and it leads us to begin to choose which cup will we drink, which decisions will we make, or the question that's going to be proposed to us today, in the face of all these options, which path will you take? And today, having seen what is wrong and dangerous, the Father is going to show to us what is safe and what is good. That God in his wisdom not only shows what is dangerous, but he gives to his children the ability to make wise decisions in light of God's faithfulness. Where in the past we saw the danger of the path of sin, today we see the wonder of the path of wisdom. And our big picture today that we're going to look at in Proverbs chapter 2 is that the grace of wisdom leads us on safe paths and delivers us from danger. The grace of wisdom leads us on safe paths and delivers us from danger. And this is a great passage because we're beginning to see the practical wonder of wisdom, of the book of Proverbs. It is going to tell us what does it look like? How is it that you can begin to 
to act and to walk in a way that is wise? How can you choose the good cup? We're going to see this in three ways today. What does it look like to be wise? Well, first, we'll see that the wise long for God. And in the middle, we are going to see that the wise trust in God. And then lastly, we're going to see that the wise obey God. This is so important because the book of Proverbs opens up with this slogan that you're probably familiar with now. We see in Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So right away, we see this contrast. Remember, Proverbs plays on contrasts. Fear of the Lord is good. It leads us to knowledge. To be a fool is to despise those things. And so we see what's good, but then what's in, what happens is we see uh, a bunch of ways in which we don't choose the fear of the Lord. We see a bunch of ways in which we fall short of having that right knowledge. We see a bunch of ways in which we can walk in the path of the fool, which leads us to say, how can I get that fear? How can I choose what is good? How can I have that knowledge of God? And in chapter 2, he begins to answer this question for us. Where can we go and what does it look like to fear the Lord? And here we see our first point, that the wise long for God. Read with me Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you receive my words... Treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding." So what we see in this text, we see a couple things. First, we see that none of us are born having this fear of the Lord. None of us are born with this knowledge of God. While the fear of the Lord is a huge idea, and we could do a series of sermons on what it means to fear the Lord, for the sake of simplicity, we've kind of summed up what Proverbs means when it talks about the fear of the Lord as this. The fear of the Lord is a reverent reliance upon God. It is recognizing your daily need for who he is and what he alone can do. And what this text shows us by the nature of the words it's using is that we are not born with a right relationship with God. We are not born with the right fear of the Lord. The action words of this text show us that we are not passively or instinctively knowing God like this. There is a gap between where our hearts begin and where this proverb is calling our hearts to be. And there are these words like store up and and seek and search and receive. All of these words stand out to make it seem like we are responsible by the action of this passage to work our way into a right relationship with God. But do you realize when we look at this text that this gap is not initially bridged by unaided human actions? This isn't purporting that if you realize you're at distance from God, if you do the hard work, you can get to God on your own. Because did you see where all of this started? Did you see the grace in Proverbs 2, verse 1? My son, if you receive my words. Where does the quest for the fear of the Lord begin? It begins in receiving God's grace freely given in his word. 
It doesn't start with your work. It starts with God's work. God's work to give his word. Without these words, we can't respond rightly to God. But when God speaks to us, when the cosmic creator of the world opens his mouth to communicate, we receive his grace. We learn what is required of us and we can respond properly. And this is so important because if you were with us last week, you remember in Proverbs 1.28, the father says that there will be people who encounter this season of trial and are convicted of something. And yet, in their conviction, they refuse to turn to God. It says they seek intentionally for him. They look, they, they look diligently for him. They have all the actions for him, but they do not find him. Why is that? Because they've looked for God everywhere, except for the place where God has already spoken, except for the place God has already reached out, except for the place God has already made himself known. Now, in contrast to Proverbs one twenty eight. Here we have Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. And where are they going in this crisis moment? Where are they going when they experience the limitations of their desires and of their hearts? Look at verse 1 and verse 6. My son, if you receive my words, if you treasure up my commandments with you. Verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. If we really want to find wisdom, which is what Proverbs is saying, is simply to find a right relationship with God that reorients everything in your life, it starts by responding to all that God has spoken to us in his word. God's word, God's commandment, as it says here, is immensely important to responding rightly to God. Now, what is the content of the word? What is the commandment he's calling us to respond to? What is it that starts this chain reaction of desire and longing and moving forward? Well, it's assumed in this Old Testament context that these commands and these words that have gone out is just a summary statement of the Old Testament law. This sounds less exciting for us. None of us have these action words stirred in our hearts when we hear of the Old Testament law because we think of it just in terms of these sterile commandments and obligations that God gives to people to crush their joy. And yet, when we were in Deuteronomy, we saw this is not at all what the law does. What the law reminds them of is that they were once God's people. When you look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it begins with this wonderful perfection. God created his people in his place with his presence in his glory. And it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. We hear that all over Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But then we rebelled. We lost the primacy of being in God's place and in God's presence. And we broke ourselves by sin from God's goodness. And what happened as sin compounded? God's people ended up enslaved. They were not in God's place under God's rule and God's presence. They were enslaved by Pharaoh, oppressed by their own sinful actions and without any hope at all. But God, without anything being done by his people. God set forth to redeem them. God brought them out by powerful works. He parted the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army. He fed them with manna and quail in the desert. And then he gave them his law. And so the summary of God's law really did two things. One, it showed them the actions which if left unaddressed 
would ultimately lead them back into slavery. It defined what was dangerous, but then also encouraged them in what was truly delighting. The second thing is, is it showed them that they might love God and experience his relational nearness and all of its benefit by following and worshiping him. The law, these commandments, this word that was being called back to was a reminder that God alone can deliver you from slavery and bring you into the immense freedom of worshiping him. And the New Testament makes this clear that everything which was physically represented in slavery in Egypt is spiritually represented in your and my slavery to sin. And Jesus has come as the fullness of the salvation that this law promised. Paul calls the law a babysitter. The law babysat you, keeping you from danger and hopefully calling you to delight until Jesus came, the master, the teacher, the one who would bring salvation. In the New Testament, the promise of God's grace comes not through the grace of the law applied externally, but the grace of Jesus applied internally. Paul says in Romans 8 that Christ did what the law limited by the flesh could not do. He took on flesh. John 1 says the word Jesus, the word of God, finally became flesh. The word which was written on tablets of stone to save God's people proved ineffective because of our broken hearts. And so God's fullness of of his plan was to have his word not be on stone, but to take on flesh in Jesus Christ and to die for those who disobeyed. The summary of God's word to us in all of scripture, this book, do you realize the summary of this book is God's plan to save a broken people through the promise of his salvation in Jesus Christ. Every page reminds us of God's zeal to save and the way we can respond to it in worship. So when you hear this message, how do you respond? The message of God's grace in Jesus Christ where Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. Well, wisdom shows us how we should respond. Look back at verses one through five. Listen to the words. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Don't you see these action words that follow? To hear this word is to respond in action. What is literally being said is grasp my words, store up, hoard the commands, do the work of gathering them, turn your ear, extend your heart, call out, yell, seek it, search for it, because if you do, if you are so motivated in an action as a response to God's grace to save, you will find the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. When the Christian sees that in Jesus, the punishment of your rebellion has been paid and that Jesus brings you back into a wonderful relationship with God, they long at whatever cost to draw nearer and nearer to this God. Which means we don't approach God's word, his covenant to deliver us as hobbyists. Right? You can do things as a hobby on a weekend. This is not a weekend endeavor. Think of where your hobby is. Maybe it's fly fishing. And I want you to go 
to the guy at the fly fishing counter, and I want you to describe your longing for a fly like this. I want to grasp it. I want to treasure your commands for this fly. My ear is turning to you. I want to incline all of my heart to you. I'm going to call out if you don't answer. I'm going to raise my voice if you stay silent. I'm going to seek it like silver. I'm going to come after you like your buried treasure. That's a weird thing to do, isn't it? But pursuing God is not a hobby. What you see here is the heart of someone who is struck by both duty and delight. Who goes after God because they see primarily he is God and he is worthy. But also that he is God and he is wonderful. You see those words? Treasure. Seek it like silver. Search for it as hidden treasure. God's word, the promise of his salvation in Jesus Christ is meant to draw us to God both in duty and in delight. Now the problem is we live in a broken world, don't we? Our hearts don't often function as they would. We don't have the desire we often ought to have. My wife and I often talk about the lies that we tell ourselves when we don't have this desire. Perhaps you've had it too. Here's God's word. The sum of his word is truth. Jesus says, be sanctified by my truth. And we say, you know, I don't have this great affection when I'm reading God's word. And so sometimes we say, well, here's what we need to do. We know it's not work-based things. So we know reading the Bible is not going to earn us delight. That's true. And so what we do is we say, well, what if we withdraw ourselves from God's word for a season of time? And when our heart becomes inflamed with right affection, then we can go back to God. And we'll, it's kind of like if we withdraw ourselves, we will soon starve for God's word, and then we'll have the right affection to move towards him. It sounds spiritual and noble, but it also sounds like an idiot, doesn't it? Think of it this way. Imagine if you were standing in a frozen wasteland, and you found a fire, and you don't have to get very close to the fire to initially feel, in contrast to what you have had your whole life, this wonderful thing called heat. And yet if you stop on the outer edges of that heat, there will come a time where you, again, begin to feel cold. And in that moment, when you look at that blazing fire and you recognize that that is the source of the heat, no one says, well, if I go back there and get really cold and come back to this spot, I'll be warm again. Instead, what do you do? When you don't feel the warmth of the fire, you move closer towards it. With dangerous delight, you draw nearer to the covenant loyalty of God in scripture. And you know that in the end, this wins. That in the end, to expose yourself to God's promise in scripture is to expose yourself to the only thing which can create affections like this. Now here's the beauty of this. If you feel convicted at your lack of affection for God, here's wisdom showing you simplicity to change your ways. Because remember, what we looked at last week is there are people who are convicted. There was genuine conviction. This calamity of life, this storm of the heart came into their, their surroundings and they realized they needed to turn, that something needed to change. And yet they turned to everything and everywhere except for God's grace. And when we feel convicted, we can often say, you're right, I need to read my Bible more. Not realizing 
that the Bible is not what ultimately fans our heart. God himself is, and the Bible is what portrays God to us. We think we ought to go to church more, but, and that's great, and you should come to church, but church does not fan the affection of God. God's presence fans the affection of God. And so when you feel convicted, all you need to do is realize that you just go to where God has promised to work, and he will do it. That you run to God and you say, I am so meh. I do not have this fear. Help me to seek. I see these words. Be gracious to me. I want to treasure. I want to store. I want to grasp. But we realize it's only by God's grace that he does that. And so we ask for his grace. And look at the wonderful thing that happens in verses 4 and 5. If you seek it like silver, if you search for it like hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, the fear of the Lord is wonderfully elusive, and yet God is eager to be generous to give it to those who come to him, to those who lay aside the fact that they think they could do it on their own and instead realize that God has come to us. God has given us a gift to receive. So I pray that we do that today. And this might sound trite and simplistic to think that, you know, a, a lifetime of, of lackluster affection or maybe moving the other way can be undone by simply coming to God's grace in Jesus. And yet, to have this fear is to have something profound happen. It places the whole of our lives under this wonderful reality of God's plan to save us in Jesus. This new heat that we experience in the gospel begins to shape every moment of our lives. To actually have this fear is to have your whole life reoriented and to humbly submit yourself to God's wisdom and God's word in every thought and deed. And the father in this text so desperately wants you to have this because he knows this experience of finding God in his word Finding God through the works of Jesus gives you the wisdom for all of life's hard choices, for all of the multiple cups that you know not to choose. This finally opens the doorway that we should choose. Look at what he says next. Look at the benefit of this fear in verses 6 and 7. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. I am a not great gift giver, which means when I get a good gift, I struggle to actually wait until, you know, the birthday or Christmas to give it because I'm so proud of myself. I just want them to have it right away. And here we see God's generous heart towards us in the gifts that accompany his salvation. God is storing up wisdom and insight for you. God is delighting to offer you the reward of that right relationship with him. He wants so desperately to watch your heart rejoice in all that he is going to give you. And here the father introduces this metaphor, which is carried through the rest of chapter 2. And that's the metaphor of when we receive this gift, we realize its wonderful works as we walk on the path of righteousness. What does it look like to walk on the path, to have God watch over our way? Well, this is our second point. We trust in God. Look at this interaction between walking and what it is we're walking in, in verses 7 through 11. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice 
watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guide you. There is a wonderful truth there in verse eight. It says that God will watch over the way of his saints. That's kind of a religious word. Saints just kind of in the New Testament, what's used, it means to be set apart. It means to be a holy one. But this word in Hebrew uh, carries not only the fact that they are set apart, but how it is they're set apart. There's a very important Hebrew word here, and it's the word chesed. I remember John Lumen has a very special way he likes to say chesed. It's like gargly and phlegmy. Um, I don't know how to say it, so if you want to know it, you could talk to him afterwards. Um, but this chesed is God's covenant love. It is not just the reality that God's love exists, but the experience of knowing that that love is for you by God's covenant, that you stand in it. And here, this word for saints is a word related to this word chesed. It is the word chesed, which means that you are one who has received God's covenant love. You are a covenant partner in the way in which God has executed your salvation. These are people, these saints are people loyal to God because they realize that God has been loyal to them. They are recipients of his covenantal love, seeing the wonderful place that God has put his promise and choosing to stand in the midst of it. It is to be made a saint by God's covenant for those who see his salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you're a partner in this wonderful covenantal grace, God does far more than love you in a moment. Instead, do you see, he watches over the rest of your way. God watches over your way. We live in a world where security systems and digital doorbells offer the promise that someone is always watching over your things. But here, the covenant God of love is constantly watching over you. He is guarding. He is shielding. He is watching. But have you considered the way in which he does all of that? And this is an important question to ask because it actually shapes and answers the question, what does it look like to trust a God who promises to guard, to watch, and to shield? Because if we don't understand the way that God guards us, the way that God watches us, the way that God shields us, we could fall into two ditches that straddle the good path. Ditch one is passivity, ditch two is obsession. We can simply, on the passive side, have a Jesus-take-the-wheel theology. We say, God is watching over me, and we can live our lives with Every careless thought in the world, because at the end, we know God's going to be there. God's got this. It's like bumper bowling lane theology. We can just hurl ourselves down the path, regardless of where we're going to go, and at the end, we just trust that God won't let us go into the ditch. And however we get there is great. But forgets to acknowledge here that you are responsible to consider, to understand, to obey. This is kind of the theology that Facebook typifies on so many of our posts, that we can remain unconcerned, unrepentant, unobedient, and still trust in this God. But on the other side is the side of uh, oppression, or excuse me, obsession. 
And here, these are the people who understand that God gives us wisdom, that God makes us responsible to do what is wise and good. And so when we encounter moments of decision, we are not passive, but instead we think that if we can think through every possible outcome of every possible scenario, we can actually exercise a certain level of control over our lives. But this fails to acknowledge that you are not all wise and all knowing. God is. And when we think this way, that we can exhaustively and comprehensively have wisdom to know every possible outcome of every possible scenario and make only wise decisions, we become crippled to actually make any decision because we feel that so much lies in the weight of it and we refuse to acknowledge that God is the one who is in control, not us. But this text actually holds up a third way of understanding what it's like to walk on God's path. And it's rooted in the transforming work that wisdom does in our heart. Look at this work in verses 9 through 11. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. You see, by God's grace... Wisdom comes into our hearts and begins to change us. You see, wisdom does not solve the limitations of your mind. But wisdom does solve the tension of your heart. Wisdom doesn't make you aware of everything that will ever happen and make your path so immensely clear that you will only and always have clarity. But what it does is it addresses the issue of trust. And in this, the knowledge of God, it says, becomes pleasant to you. What it literally means is it becomes friendly to you. This is a good guide. This is a comfort. This is a grace. And this third way of walking in safety is not passivity or obsession, but instead faithful reflection on God's faithfulness. Because if you notice... It says that God will guard you and God will watch you. But in verse 11, after this moment of heart change, we actually see how he does it. How does God watch over you? How does God guard you? Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. This heart change that happens in verse 10 of knowledge coming into our hearts, wisdom changing us, becoming friendly with us, gives us new thoughts, and by those thoughts we experience God's grace of guarding and watching. It means that walking in wisdom is walking in a constant awareness that God always keeps his promise in the gospel. If wisdom is a reliance upon God, the God who saves us, then walking in wisdom is considering every aspect of our lives through the lens of what God has provided in his salvation. This means that every career decision, every relationship decision, every financial decision is meant to be discerned and to be understood distinctly because of the grace you've received in Jesus. We have new thoughts, active thoughts, and God wants us to weigh those thoughts in the scale of his faithfulness to us in Jesus. And this means that the most practical question when it comes to decisions in your life, is not first and foremost, what do I do? The most important question, first and foremost, is whom am I trusting? Because when we have this heart change, our discretion and our understanding 
recognizes that there is only one person worthy of trust, one way that we can bank our lives on. If God has shown his faithfulness for you in Jesus, then we can rely on him in every moment of our lives. You no longer have to make decisions based on self-reliance or fear of man. And this is important because the path of righteousness and obedience might at times look dangerous. But when we consider the gospel, we realize that God has already proven his trustworthiness even when it seems the path, the way of righteousness is covered by dark clouds. Consider how David, Solomon's dad, speaks of this in Psalm 23. What does it look like to walk on God's way? What does it look like to trust in God's plan? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We love this so far. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, Jesus, let it be so. But then there's a dastardly break between verses three and four that we often forget. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Life on this path, the path of God's covenant faithfulness will lead you to dangerous and fearful places. But because we have seen our Savior dying on a tree, we know that in moments where it seems everything is going wrong and God has forgotten all about his promise, that God is fulfilling his promise and working for our good even when we can't understand it. And we endure we can continue to follow him. Wisdom doesn't necessarily tell you what to do, but it tells you who you can trust. And when the battle for trust is won in your heart, the foot soldiers of obedience will follow wherever it goes. When we begin to trust God, what to do and how we do it becomes implicit because we're willing to obey him. We trust that he is working always and only for our good, and this is where we see the third point today. The wise obey God. Not only does wisdom give us an understanding of what it looks like to trust God's promises, but here we see its deliverance from danger. And we see here this, these two alternative paths that the Father's going to show to us, the path of the evil man and the forbidden woman. And it starts with this verb that you are delivered from it. Verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and whose ways and who are devious in their ways, so you will be delivered by the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life." My wife and I recently watched a documentary on Netflix which kind of presented a really depressing picture of how social media is going to steal all of our kids and ruin our lives. And in this, there's this uh, group of kind of defected ex-web developers and app developers who are talking about how they, um, the people who are creating these apps that we're using are literally learning the pathways of biology to hijack our internal hardwiring 
to get into our brains and our affections. And they're saying that what is really at stake is not the temptation of social media, but actually the control of social media. That it's beginning to manipulate and have a certain amount of control over our behavior. And these developers are now kind of panicking and saying, what can we do to escape this? It's gotten such a firm control over its user, how could we ever live without it? And here we see similar threats in Proverbs. Two threats with pervasive power. One is the threat of evil men who want to turn you into a predator, consuming those around you for your own gain. We read more about this in chapter 1. The other is a new character that's introduced that we'll read more of as Proverbs continues. And this is the forbidden woman, a tempting woman who wants to use you as prey, pulling you down into the grave. When we look at those two things, there's really two heart desires behind each of these. There's the promise of power and the promise of pleasure. If you want power, you will fall in line with the men and you will consume those around you for your own greedy gain. If you want pleasure, you will follow the voice of the woman. The problem is each of these roads leads to death. But wisdom, this, look at verse, uh, verse uh, Where am I at here? I'm on the wrong page. This will help. Verse 11. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way. Wisdom does something wonderful. It delivers you from these. That word literally means to extract, to withdraw, to get you out. These web developers are so anxious because they say, who can help when we are so controlled? Wisdom does. God's grace does. It takes us out of a situation wherein we are controlled entirely by our sin, and it delivers us from it. How does it deliver us? How has God delivered you? By changing your heart by setting you free in Jesus Christ, and also by showing you the foolish trap of these paths, by showing you the danger of the call of the evil man and the forbidden woman. The great philosopher Dwight K. Schrute once said, whenever I'm about to do something, I think to myself, would an idiot do that? And if an idiot would do that, I do not do that thing. Here is the knowledge of Dwight Schrute. Here God shows you the foolishness of forsaking the path of wisdom and shows the complete folly of power and pleasure in a way that says only a fool would follow this path. Who would do this? And We see that this is assumed. This is what is intended by the Father because look at how verse 20 begins. After he describes the evil call of the men who have crooked paths and the central call of the forbidden woman who calls down to the grave, he says, so you will walk in the way of good. Because who wants that? So you will walk in the way of good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. It's so obvious to see the danger of power. It's so obvious to see the death of pleasure. And so what ought we to do? We ought to choose the path of what is good and keep to the path of what is righteous. Brothers and sisters, do not be mistaken. To boast in a God who sovereignly watches and guards is not to assume you will not be tempted.
for wisdom is to you a shield and a guard. It assumes nearness to the evil men and the forbidden woman. But it also knows that because we've seen the promise of God in Jesus Christ, that what now stands between us is stronger than what lies on the other side. You have been delivered from their effective power because Christ himself has interceded. Christ has borne the punishment of that. Christ himself has gone to the grave for you. We no longer listen to the promise of others because we have seen the proven promise of God in Jesus. He took the death these paths deliver, and he took it for you. You who had a debt, it's now been paid in his death. And now all of the end of those foolish paths can be seen so clearly. To follow that path, no matter the promise, is to see the end, it leads to death. But to walk in wisdom realizes it's only following God's path in God's promise in Jesus that you get life. And here that life is expressed in this term, this covenantal term, the land. Right? He's calling all the way back to God's promise in Deuteronomy, the promise of God to bring his people into the promised land. He's referring to this place where everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden, the place, the people, the presence of God is being restored. He's bringing them to this wonderful new reality. And the author of Hebrews shows us that this physical land gives way to the promise of a spiritual land. Caught up in Proverbs chapter two is the hope of heaven itself where God restores us to himself at the end without any threat or harm. And those who follow the path of God responding to his grace and relying upon his faithfulness, they will inherit this promise-keeping, rewarding God. They will get goodness forever, but those who forget God's goodness in Jesus Christ, those who do not fear the Lord, those who forget to walk in righteousness, those who forsake the covenant of their youth, they will not endure. It is a path that does not lead to salvation, but instead to judgment. In 1869, John Wesley Powell led the first expedition through the Grand Canyon by means of the Colorado River. And the river, unmapped, uncharted, and unknown, was the only path this band was to take through the canyon. And the crew passed through dangerous rapids, rapids which broke many boats and lost many supplies. They had to to walk and carry their boats at times across some of the most dangerous rocks on the verge of these steep precipices. Is that the plural of precipice? I don't know. Sure, sounds good. It was taxing. It was fearful. They had no idea what would come next. And there came a point in the expedition where three men finally said, I've had enough. This fool cannot get us where we want to go. And they left the path of the river. They left the expedition of Powell and went out in the desert. Two days later, John Powell and his remaining men reached the mouth of the canyon safely and got their reward. The three men who wandered off were never heard from again. You see, choosing the path which leads to life is to choose the often hard and difficult path of righteousness in an unrighteous world. But the cross of Jesus is the sign we need to follow our leader with a willing and reverent obedience. We will not know at any point what lay behind any corner 
of our journey. But if we know the God who loves us in Jesus Christ, we know for certain what stands at the end. And that is worth moving forward for. That is worth submitting to. So let us long to be led by this king, knowing that this path of grace in Jesus Christ is a good path. Let us look to God's gracious word and see that in fearing and obeying this king, we receive the benefit of wisdom which delivers and of a grace which endures. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given to us your word. We pray today that we would receive it, that we would incline our ear to it, that we would extend our heart towards it, that we would seek it like silver, we would search for it like hidden treasures. Lord, we thank you that your word has become flesh and promised us a greater deliverance and a path which leads to your promise. We pray you give us the ability in hard places in our own lives to know what it looks like to trust in you, that we constantly go back to the fact that in Jesus you have promised our good, you have shown us your faithfulness, and so when it seems that the call of sin promises the escape from what is dangerous, that we trust that there is no escape apart from Jesus. And we continue to trust and obey because we want to inherit the promise of God stored up for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.